You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. We're going to use a simple process of dating things, where let's call the Chatimata Talmud, the closing of the Talmud, let's put that at about the year 500. From the year 500 until the year, let's call it the year 1000, we have the generations of the Savoraim and we have the Gaonim. These great luminaries whom we know very little information about, we know there are certain individuals, of course, Rav Sadi Gaon and, and Rav Hai Gaon and Rav Shri Gaon and, and, uh, and stories like Bastanai and, and the story of the, uh, of the Kuzari. You know, we, we have information, but we don't have a lot of information, or um, we certainly don't have as much as we would have later. But then, about the year 1000, give or take, begins the era of the Rishonim. And the Rishonim... Some of them took on the roles very much associated with um, the old tradition of studying the Talmud. So, for example, Rashi. Rashi became the greatest commentator on the Talmud. You can't even learn the Talmud unless you're learning with it the commentary of Rashi. You had the Rif, Rabbeinu Yitzchak Alfasi, who, who focused more on the halachic conclusions taken from the Talmud. You had different great... Um, Torah giants who looked at things from a different point of view and each of them contributed their input into our Torah that we have today. One of the greatest of these luminaries and we don't have scales by which we can measure and say who's more and who's less but one of the greatest of these luminaries is the Rambam. We've spent much time in our classes learning the Rambam. In fact, we just recently completed um, the study of most of Sefer Hamada, where the Rambam lays out his viewpoints on, on philosophy and science and, and uh, machshava and, um, and yahadut. The Rambam lays out what he considers the foundations and the basic essential principles of Judaism. But the Rambam also wrote a Sefer of Halakha called Mishneh Torah. And the Rambam also wrote a Sefer which is called a Pirush, a commentary, because he wrote the Pirush HaMishnayot, Shalom Rambam. He wrote a commentary on the Mishnah. The Rambam, basically, was, um, was one of the greatest of the Rishonim in all of these areas. But of the area in which the Rambam stirred up the most controversy was in the area of philosophy, specifically through the Sefer Mora Nevuchim. In Mora Nevuchim, translated usually as the Guide to the Perplexed, the Rambam makes statements that many rabbis considered to be inappropriate. He makes statements that certain rabbis considered to be offensive to religious Jews. And because of that, even in the Rambam's own lifetime, there were those who wanted to ban the writings, um, the Mor and the Vuchim, the Guide to the Perplexed, and they even wanted to take it so far as to say, if the Rambam can write the kinds of things that he wrote in Mor and the Vuchim, then we should be rejecting everything that the Rambam wrote. What was it? 
specifically that he said that offended the rabbi? So, great, great um, question. I think it's important to ask the question. It's a little bit difficult to give the answer because there's so many different areas which they were going at the Rambam, especially in Mar Nevuchim. But let me tell you the two areas which they had the most difficulty with. Uh, but, but you should know that this wasn't what I'm about to share with you is not the extent of, of everything that they complained about the Rambam. Number one is that the Rambam takes certain stories given in the Torah and certain stories given in the, wor- in, in the Talmud. He turns them from being pshat, to, from being literal, to being allegorical. So, very often when, when something will happen in the Torah the Rambam will write that it didn't actually happen in real life. It was only a vision that the prophet saw in his imagination, but it didn't actually happen. So, so there are those who took serious issue with that. The Torah seems to suggest that these events actually happened. And you, um, the Rambam, are trying to reinterpret that as allegory or, or, or something like that. So they took great offense um, for, um, from this. But here, and, and I'm going to share with you a second, the second issue that they took with the Rambam, and this is a little bit more difficult to explain, but uh, l- let me give it a, a shot here. The Rambam in Morin Nevuchim. What, what is this book about? It is the guide to the perplexed. And it's hard for me to explain the issues that they had with the Rambam without including the defenses that are given to the Rambam. Um, so I apologize if I may be skipping ahead in what I explain, but um, I'm going to try to say it in the clearest way. In the, in, between the year 500 and 1000, Europe was dark. They call it the Dark Ages for a reason. And in, many, in the minds of many people of Western civilization, they tend to think of that time as dark for the world. But that is a mistake. Because those, those centuries were the golden age of the Arabian philosophers, of the Muslim philosophers, Averroes, Abu Sina, etc., all these great philosophers of the, of the Muslim world. They were the wisdom and the knowledge of that time. By the time the year 1000 comes around, the Western world, the Christian world, is starting to wake up. They're they're starting to climb out of the darkness and they're starting to learn a little bit. And... but, But they were far behind. So one of the areas in which the Muslim philosophers extended themselves into was they wanted to prove that Islam is the logical and rational religion. Because in those days they believed that the rational and the logical are the way to come to the truth. And so if they could explain why Islam is more logical and more rational, then they will have proven that they have the true and correct religion. That's the way, I know I'm oversimplifying, but that's the way it comes out. So, what's rational and what's logical? 
who decides what's rational and what's logical? So if you go back a thousand years, there was only one authority, one true authority on what's rational and what's logical. And his name was Aristotle. Up until the days, you know, more recent centuries, when Aristotle has been questioned and basically almost entirely rejected, up until then, Aristotle was considered the greatest authority on what is rational and what is correct. So the Muslims spent all this time proving and showing that Islam is the religion that fits into an Aristotelian system. And you know, you know how Jews are. When Jews hear about this new knowledge, this new way of thinking, they all read it. Because Jews are curious, and Jews want to find out. We want knowledge, we have this desire for knowledge, we thirst for knowledge. And so there were all these Jews who were reading all these works that were telling them that Judaism is illogical and irrational and not Aristotelian, and is therefore objectionable. And so many Jews turned to Islam. And this provided for a very dangerous world. Which is why the Rambam, realizing that all these Jews are turning to Islam, he writes a book called Mora Nevuchim. In this book, the Rambam lays out a beautiful system for an Aristotelian understanding of Judaism. If you, if you read the Mora Nevuchim, you see how not only does he explain how the Muslims misunderstood Aristotle and that they corrupted the ideas of Aristotle and tried to stuff Aristotle into their religion which doesn't fit that wasn't his only focus but the other way he showed how Judaism is an Aristotelian system now since the Rambam is showing that Judaism does fit within Aristotle's system it requires taking a lot of deep spiritual ideas from Judaism and turning them into very rational and practical things. So, for example, the reason why they offered the incense burning in the temple is because there was so much meat burning that you needed something to make the smell better. What? The mitzvah of Ketoret? The holy Ketoret? Is only... Uh, uh, an air freshener for the temple? Right? So that's, I, I'm, I'm saying it like this because I want you to understand how people took offense. Right? That's why I'm saying it like this. Because that's what people said. What are you talking about? You're saying that, that, the, that the reason why we're not allowed to do certain things is because, because of the way the priests did it, because of the this. Like, you're taking all these holy ideas and you're making them into silly... Um, um, you know, mind games almost. And, and, and so people were upset when they read this because it looks like the Rambam is trivializing and cheapening the mitzvot of the Torah. There were other issues. 
with the writings of the Rambam. But uh, we're going to focus, uh, uh, just in order to bring out examples, we're going to stick to those two. Again, the first is his um, allegorical explanations um, of, of things that are seemingly supernatural. And the second is his reinterpretation of the commandments as being uh, a rational um, behavior um, um, therapies uh, of sorts. And uh, people found that very offensive. And so, yeah, yeah, that, absolutely, right, right, well, we'll get to that. So first, they banned him, and they banned his books. And you can't imagine, you cannot imagine the fighting that was going on. Because we're, we're talking here about the Rambam. There were entire communities that based their religious observance on the words of the Rambam entire communities and for someone to suggest that the Rambam is outside the box and you should know many people don't realize this but it's not just Moran Nebuchadnezzar that was in question it was also Sefer Hamada that, that we read that, um, that, that, was, that was rejected but the main reason why it was rejected was because basically they said this is not pure Torah it is Torah influenced by the writings of Aristotle. It is a mixture of an Iruv, of Tovarah, of good and evil. And, and so why do we need the Rambam's writings? Who needs Aristotle? What do we need all this stuff for? And so they took, uh, and you should note that the people who opposed the writings of the Rambam were some great people. For example, the great Rabbeinu Yonah was one of those people who issued a ban on the writings of, 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 of the Rambam. Now later, when they burned the Rambam's books, as, as you mentioned, right, later when they would burn the Rambam's books, it sounds like Rabbeinu Yonah at that point understood that, uh, that uh, there, things have gone too far, but certainly, uh, within a decade, when, when the, when the, when the uh, Talmud was being burnt in the public square, people understood that this was divine retribution for having burned the books of the Rambam, and, and we're told that Rabbi Nuyona wrote Shari Tshuva, a book on how to do Teshuva. He wrote this as a way of doing Teshuva for writing against the Rambam. So it's not clear who, who uh, oh, you mean who burnt the Talmud? That was the French, um, right? The, 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 the great sun king. Uh, the, um, you know, they, burnt the, uh, um, they burnt the Talmud. But, but, and there's another topic that I'm totally setting aside, which is that the reason why these bad things happened was because the rabbis who were against the Rambam actually went to the French government and accused the Rambam of being a heretic against the Christian faith as well. In other words, they, 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 they called in help from the outside. Uh, from the, uh, and that, of course, ends up not being good for anyone. Now, again, this is, this is an actual fight that occurs. This would come up again and again and again in every generation. The question of philosophy and its role within Jewish thought, and specifically focused around the writings of the Rambam. Century after century, this fight would be raised up again. There would be those who would be opposed 
to um, the Rambam and banning all of his books. And then there were those who um, were pro the Rambam and they felt like the Rambam's books all need to be studied. But I want to, if I may, bring the debate down to one central point, And that's this. Essentially, the debate is, does a religious Jew need philosophy? Does a Jew, in general, benefit from the study of philosophy? Or, is philosophy just silliness of humanity in trying to figure out things that humanity has no place figuring out? Let me say that again. On side number one is that philosophy is the capacity of the human mind to figure things out. And without philosophy, you really don't know anything. You don't understand anything. You don't know how to think. And therefore, every Jew must study philosophy. And, uh, and that will help you have a greater understanding of Torah and everything else. While the other side says philosophy is just human beings trying to play games trying to understand God. And why do we need this silly human-created conjecture system when we have the Torah, which gives us the truth? Those are two sides of a question, right? How do you resolve this question? Debate between French Rabbi and Spanish right. in the beginning, or am I incorrect? That's correct, and I'm going to get to that soon, in, in okay. why it became divided like this. Okay, actually, let's go there now. Now, why, why am I making this about the French rabbis and the Spanish rabbis? The reason is, because along came the Ramban, Nachmanides. Nachmanides had a fascinating compromise to this debate. Here's what Nachmanides, Rabbi Moshe ben Nachman said. He said, listen, the Jews who are living in Spain are living in a society where everyone's a philosopher, where everyone knows um, all the polemic, people know the teachings of Aristotle and people know the teachings of, uh, going back, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, Epicurus, Galenus, they all know all these, all these teachings. So in a society like that, if they don't have the works of the Rambam to explain to them how philosophy and Judaism go together, the people are in danger. I mean, think about the Rambam himself. Why did he write the book? Because he saw so many Jews who were being influenced by the, by the Muslim philosophers. So says the Ramban, for the Jews of Spain, they need the guide to the perplexed. But the French rabbis, who are living amongst the Christians, who, um, again, the, the, their, those communities, the world around them is just climbing out of the Dark Ages. There's no philosophers in northern France. And instead, you've got Torah sages like Rashi and his grandchildren, who are Talmudists, who are studying the Talmud to the deepest depths of the Pshat, the simple understanding. And their students and their youth, the young, are studying Torah and Talmud, and that's it. There's no one around them being a philosopher, so what do they need to learn this for? So says the Ramban, it should depend on the community. 
in a situation and a place where you need philosophy, then you need the Rambam, and you need this rational approach to Judaism, whether you agree with it or not. But in other communities, like in the French communities, says the Ramban, not they don't need it. Maybe they shouldn't be learning it at all. And what this compromise of the Ramban accomplishes is that, is that it's no longer just about the communities. It's no longer just about the communities. Because what the Ramban is saying is that philosophy is a decision, if it's per community in those days, maybe today, it's every person's personal situation and where they are as to whether they should be studying philosophy or not. But it's not, you, you don't make the Ramban, and that's part of what he writes, you don't make one rule for everyone. There's different kinds of people and different ways of thinking and different ways of processing and some people need philosophy. Uh, it, it's amazing that the Ramban has the, the insight. It's, he's not just compromising. I mean, sometimes you hear people compromising. You know what? You, you think this is yours. You think this is yours. Why don't you cut it in half and divide it? Not because I think that's the truth, but because, you know, let's resolve the fight. The Ramban's not just compromising by saying, okay, you know what, you do your thing, you do your thing. He's saying, no, this is the way it's supposed to be. For people who are raised with philosophical inclinations, they need philosophical resolutions. And for societies that are raised with a more simple uh, way of thinking and looking at things and they don't delve into these philosophies, why bring up the issue? So, because of this Ramban, what ends up happening is that the French rabbis stick with more of the studying of the Talmud, while the Spanish rabbis, following this Ramban's compromise, continue to push the importance of studying philosophy, so that every hundred years, the fight starts again, because one of the Spanish rabbis says, look at those French rabbis who don't even know how to think, and, and the, and the uh, French rabbis shouting back at the Spanish rabbis, maybe we don't know how to think, but that's better than you who thinks incorrectly. I don't think it's important to go into how nasty this fight gets. It does get nasty. But that's just because human beings are human beings. Very often people go, how could it be that these great and holy people should behave this way? Human beings are human beings. And, uh, you know, people are the way that they are. And so I don't think the details of, uh, of this is important. But what is important is that this debate remains to today. Because today, you've got, there are certain people who believe that, that the continuing, continuing to study other ways of thinking will allow you to have a better understanding of the Torah itself. And there are others who say that studying other ways of thinking is going to corrupt your mind with other kinds of stuff. I mean, let's think of it this way. In the days of the Rambam, in the days of the Rambam, Studying philosophy basically meant studying Aristotle, right? And, and, and how things worked with Aristotle. Aristotle believed in God. That's a big deal. Aristotle believed in God. Aristotle had a strange understanding of God. He, he believed in the most far-off, unrelatable, and disconnected God, the Aristotle. Which is, of course, a lot better than, let's say, Plato. Plato. Plato believed that religion was a tool 
that you use to control the people. Um, you know, I, I think uh, Marx and his op- opium of the masses comment is really a corruption of what Plato said. That, that basically, that you have to make the religion that's best suited for the people. You have to make it very relatable, make the gods very human characters. This is the way that Plato described it as simply a way of controlling people. Aristotle went beyond that. Aristotle believed that, no, God is this infinite being. He just, he believed you couldn't connect to it. And so by the time the Rambam is, comes along, the Rambam says, no, 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 Aristotle is right that God is infinite. But he's not infinite, uh, meaning the infinity of God does not get in the way of God interacting with us and communicating with us. So what he did was he bridged Judaism in the pr- uh, process of Aristotle. But, you know, that changes. That changes. I mean, I'm sure you, all of you have had a chance to study philosophy at some point. But by the time you come to the 16th century, and uh, let's blame it on Francis Bacon. Francis Bacon was, a, was an English philosopher, and he, you know, his, his opinions on religion, I don't know if anyone knows what Francis Bacon believed on religion. He was so confusing because he's trying to be a, a person in a religious world, but at the same time, Francis Bacon is a philosopher, and he starts this process of questioning all these basic beliefs that everyone has. And if you move into the 17th century, you have Spinoza. Spinoza believed that everything is God, and God is everything, right? He was the uh, pantheism. So what happens, the point I'm making, is that as philosophy moves forward after the Rambam, philosophy itself changes from being an open-minded kind of view of is there a God or isn't there a God, philosophy changed. And now philosophy became about rationalism and moving away from God. In fact, if I think it was Voltaire who said, the further I go, the more I'm confirmed in the idea that the systems of metaphysics are for philosophers, what novels are for women. That's what I think it's Voltaire who said that. That all these philosophers who are coming up with this new system of, of metaphysics, it's like, it's like the women reading novels. And before we cancel uh, um, uh, Voltaire for making uh, comments uh, like that, we should remember that he's probably the, the father of, of the concept of many freedoms that we experience today. And then after Voltaire, it's, it's basically, it's, it's all, um, all, all holds are allowed, no holds barred, if we may. And starting from, let's say, John Locke and, and his gang, they started a war on religion. Kant, he, um, Kant basically seals the deal by saying that nobody knows anything. You can't know religion, you can't know philosophy, you can't know anything. And then, and then Schopenhauer says... Listen, look how bad the world is. Look how many people are, are, are dying. Look how horrible the world is. There is no God. And then Nietzsche comes along and makes a mockery of God. Turns religion into a big joke so that now, by the time you come to philosophy today, and Nietzsche died in 1900, so, so we're talking 121 years ago. By the time you come to Nietzsche, it's almost embarrassing for a philosopher to, to admit that he has any religion in him. So, we have to wonder about this, because if this debate is occurring a thousand years ago, 
or 800 years ago, when, when philosophy still allowed room for, for religious ideals and religious way of thinking, it's certainly much more dangerous today when we have um, basically the whole world of philosophy and, I mean, going to um, Starte and all the others, um, the, um, I mean, call, call them great philosophers, but basically philosophy is a very powerful way of being drawn away from the Torah. I mean, think about it. If you had to read all these works that are there laying out why these great French um, philosophers think that there's no God, or the great uh, British philosophers who think that there's no God, and uh, there may have been some American philosophers too, if you can find any. But, but that, that's very dangerous for a student of the Torah. And so the question, and I'll start with this, so then what's the gain? What's the gain? Why risk studying the Moran Nebuchim? Why risk studying maybe these Hegel or, or um, you know, any of the other great philosophers, why risk it if what you have is Torah and these things, these other teachings, are likely to try to take you away from the truth of the Torah? So we have the approach of the French rabbis who say, don't, don't study it. Originally, when they were debating this, they were, part of the issue was that they believed that the Rambam himself had been corrupted. It's hard to say those words. I mean, we're, we, we live by the Rambam. Uh, there, there's, um, you know, uh, we, famously we're told, Mimosha ad Moshe, lokam kamosha. Right? From Moshe Rabbeinu until the Rambam, there was no one like, like what, what the, I mean, what the Rambam did, we can't, our Shulchan Aruch is based on the Rambam more than anyone else, everything, everything. There's more Torah, there's more Sfarim written on the Rambam than on any other Sefer that's been written in, 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 within uh, the peers of, of the Rambam. God doesn't play a dice with the universe. And Woody Allen said, no, he plays hide and seek. So... How would you explain it with the French and the Spanish? Right, so uh, that's that's a great way of asking the question. Yeah, you know, that's part of the problem. That is exactly part of the problem. Is that, you see, the thing with philosophy is, it is a game of hide-and-seek. Because the God is infinite. And when we say infinite, we don't understand what infinity means. Because we use it so often in mathematical equations and we name a car after it, that, that we think that the word infinity, right? Infinity means without end. It's limitless. And God is not just infinite in terms of time and space, but infinite in terms of uh, quality, um, of, of His attributes. So God knows everything, God understands everything, and it's beyond anything that we can... So we can't fathom it, we can't imagine it. So a human being simply cannot it says in the Torah your, your, the human mind has no capacity to contain the concept which is God so it is a game of hide and seek because as far as your intellect is going to take you and all the logical proofs that you're going to bring to God's existence in the end you're trying to prove something that you can't understand you're trying to prove something you can't define so it's a game of hide and seek because you go looking and you see something and then you come close and you say, oh, that's not it. And you go in this direction and you say, that's not it. 
And so all you're doing is creating confusion. So, I mean, this is the argument against the study of philosophy. There are others who say, and hopefully we'll have time to explain, that, that, there, is a, there, that there is something to gain from philosophy before we go there. I want to make one point. This is from the writing of Rabbi Shlomo ben Aderet, the Rajba, one of the most important of the, um, um, of the writers of the, amongst the Rishonim. And this is what he writes. He says, you don't need to learn, you don't need to learn philosophy. Don't bring me proof from the Rambam. Because the Rambam knew the entire Torah. Halachot, Agadot, Tosefta, Sifra, Sifrei, V'kulei Talmuda, Bavli, Yerushalmi. You read the Mishnah Torah and you see that the Rambam is an exception to every rule. He, the Rambam knows Kol HaTorah Kula. And then says the Rajba, And in order to, um, uh, re, to, to, to respond to the heretics, Asa Sefer HaMora, he wrote the Mora, Listor HaMofsim V'Arayot Shehevya Philosoph, to disprove the, the proofs that were brought by the philosophers, by Averroes and Abyssinia mostly, um, but, um, but by Aristotle as well. And listen to the words of the Rajbah. The Rambam lived in a time when there were so many Nevochim, there were so many lost people. There were so many people who were confused that the Rambam needed to write this book, and the Rajbah is almost suggesting that the Rambam himself didn't even believe everything that's in the Mora Nevochim. He wrote it for those who needed an Aristotelian system. Here's your Aristotelian system. But the Rambam himself, for his personal view, would never have accepted his own book as his guide. That's a bold statement to make by the Rajbah. The, in the end, In the end, and I'm, I'm going to give away the end, um, at least on one side of this question, comes the ruling of the Gaon of Vilna. Rabbi Leo Kramer, you know, the rabbi in Vilna, was undisputedly, was the leader of the world, of the Torah world of the yeshivot. The mother of all yeshivas, the Velazhin yeshiva, was um, founded by Rabbi Chaim of Velazhin, who was one of the primary students of the Vilna Gaon. And the Vilna Gaon is commenting on the Rambam. The Rambam makes a comment that when it comes to Lachashim, which are incantations that you recite over a wound, the Rambam says that it's garbage, it's silliness. The Rambam writes, there's no such thing as magic, there's no such thing as the dark arts, it's all illusion, it's all, it's all, uh, um, it's all just tricks, parlor tricks. Says the Vilna Gaon on this Rambam, The Rambam followed the ways of the philosophers. That's why the Rambam writes that none of this is real. 
Aval kvar hiku oto al kadkado. They've already beaten the Ramam up for this. And I'm skipping a few lines. Valis philosophia hitato barov likcha. That the Rambam was fooled by the thinkers and the philosophers to reinterpret the Talmud b'derech halatzi v'lakor otam ipshutam v'chas v'shalom says the Vilna Gaon eni ma'min bahem right very, very clever because the Rambam of course taught us what the ani ma'mins are ani ma'min I believe the Rambam taught us the 13 ani ma'mins so the Vilna Gaon says of these other stuff that the Rambam writes eni ma'min bahem v'lo mehem v'lo ma'amonam I say, and he says, no, that's not true. These things are true literally, meaning that the stories of the Torah are literal. There is a pnimiut within them, but not the pnimiut of philosophia. It's the pnimiut of Kabbalah, which is, which is the correct way of looking deeper into the concepts of, uh, of Judaism. So the Vilna Gaon basically rejected philo- philosophy. And that's why in the yeshivot, even if they will allow for education in the world of mathematics and in, in, some of the other, in some of the other areas of study, philosophy is never really given any opening. Completely, um, completely rejected. Um, but do uh, they believe in magic and Bahashim and things like that in the yeshivot? Right, so they do. They do. They teach you that something which maybe existed in the old days and today doesn't exist as much or, or other explanations within that realm but not like the Rambam who rejected magic as, as just um, optical illusions. Okay. So, if I may, what's the defense of the Rambam? If it's true and the Gra is giving this ruling, which is why today in the Yeshiva world, they don't even bring up the philosophers. I'd say most students of the Yeshiva couldn't name um, more than you know, Aristotle and maybe Plato. They don't discuss this at all. Because there are dangers there. And, and as I had pointed out before, it's even more dangerous today because philosophy has specifically taken an anti-religious slant and beyond anti-religious, it makes a mockery of religion. It's, it's, it's more than anti, I don't know what's a stronger word, but it's, it, it degrades religion. And it's very hard for someone to read these works and, and to not be influenced in, a, in, a, in, in many ways. So, that, and that's today, but even back in the days of the Rambam, what's the explanation? How do we understand this? So, one of the explanations, and this is, this is a uh, big, big subject, but there's a question as to... Uh, let me try this from a different direction. There's a contradiction in the Rambam. Uh, I may have shared this once before, but th- there's a contradiction in the Rambam. In one place, the Rambam writes that it is a mitzvah leda, to know that there is a God. And somewhere else, the Rambam writes that the mitzvah is laha'amin, to believe that there is a God. And it seems like a contradiction on, in the Rambam, because believing something 
doesn't seem like it's the same as knowing something. So, the story is told that the Aviazri, Rabbi Eliezer Menachem Man Shach, the great Rosh Hashiva of the 20th century, the Rosh Hashiva of the Panovich Yeshiva, he's uh, one of my Rosh Hashiva's Rosh Hashiva, he um, had this question, this tra- contradiction in the Rambam. And he decided he was going to go to the greatest expert in the world on the Rambam. Rabbi Yitzchak Zev Soloveitchik, the Briskarov. The Soloveitchiks, of course, um, dedicated the great portion of their Torah study to understanding the Rambam. So he went to the Briskarov and said to him, here's my contradiction in the Rambam. And the Briskarov said, you know, when I saw this, I also had this contradiction. And I went to the greatest expert in the world on the Rambam in my days, which was his father, Reb Chaim Soloveitchik, to try to resolve this question. And when I went to my father, he told me that he also had this question when he was young, and he went to the biggest expert on the Rambam in his lifetime, his father, the Beis Alevir of Yashuber Soloveitchik, to try to resolve this question. And I think it's very important to see within this story how it's like student to teacher, in this case son to father, but it's like this tradition and the answer that they all got taking, bringing down all the way from the Beis Alevi down to Rav Shach was that there's two areas. There's the parts of thinking that are within the capacity of your mind. You can think about God. You can think about whether... Um, you can come to an understanding and a belief that there is a God. You can do what's called Chakira to investigate and think about could the universe exist if there wasn't something that is a catalyst for that existence. And what kind of infinite being must the infinite being be in order to be a catalyst, not subject to catalysts himself? these These are big questions that we can understand. And that is called Yediya, that's called knowledge. Says Yosef Dev Alevi Salavechik, you're going to reach a line. You're going to reach a line. At that, point in the, uh, at that point, you've reached the limits of what your brain can understand. And you have two choices. You can say, I don't understand the rest, which means I reject the rest. In which case, all of your faith is based within your philosophy. He says, you'll be lost. Because human beings can never truly come to any conclusion in the, uh, regarding the infinite. He says, but if when you reach the line of your Yediyah, you leave the rest to Emunah, then you have the perfect balance. Th- th- again, this is, this is the solution of the, the, the brisk approach to this. Coming all the way down to uh, Panovich with Rav Shach. That basically, you've got, these two, you've got these two areas. There's the areas in which the human being could understand. And there, the Rambam is saying, Sir, you have to know. You have to know. You have to think about these things. You have to study God's creation. You have to see the wonders of the world. You find, the, find God in an atom. Find God in an earthworm. And find God in the, in the um, billions of stars in the billions of galaxies. Find God in those things and get whatever you can get and then when you reach that line, believe that what you don't understand, leave it to your amuna. So it comes out a really interesting approach. There are those who say that just have amuna. Don't think about these things, it will confuse you. That's the French rabbis. 
They're saying, study the Torah, study the Talmud, get it all um, clear in your head, know the pshat. What are you dealing with questions that are not for human beings to ask? And when human beings ask them, they all come to the wrong conclusions. Look, look, thousands of years of philosophy. And today, I don't even know if philosophy is still on the top ten things that people study. Philosophy is, right, Nietzsche said that God is dead, but, um, you know, I'm saying philosophy is kind of dead. But, but, but it used to be, it used to be that, you know, th- there was this room for, for, for thinking. And we, um, the, 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 those who say you should just have faith, they say the thinking is just too dangerous. And the others who say you need the philosophy, they say you're, you're fooling yourself by just telling yourself stories. How do you believe something that you've never thought about? How do you believe, how are you going along and living your life if you've never verified that your life and the choices you're making are the actual choices? And so they mock the people of faith as, 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 um, as gullible and naive. Which is interesting, because they're not disagreeing with the conclusion. They're just disagreeing with how they got to that conclusion. And they're telling them, you'd be better off if you studied philosophy. That's what the Spanish rabbis are saying. Comes along this uh, approach of, of, of the Soloveitchiks by saying that you don't, it doesn't have to be a contradiction. You don't need the philosophy of, of the ancients. You do need Chakira, you do need to ask yourself, investigate and ask these questions. Um, and, and we find, for example, in the Chovot HaLevavot, the duties of the heart, he wrote Shar HaYichud, there's a chapter there, trying to prove the existence of God. Can you? Can you prove the existence of God? So there are those who refuse to learn Shar HaYichud. But the, the Shalah HaKadosh said that everyone should be studying this work and the Shalah was a great Mekubal. Because throughout the generations this debate continues about whether philosophy is safe and useful and may I say educational as opposed to the others who say that philosophy is an exercise in heresy. The Chovot Alavavot, Rabbeinu Bachye Ibn Pekuda. So, you know, in in the end, in the end, you know, the in today's world, if if I can fast forward, you'll find it interesting that in the yeshiva world, they don't study these things. In they don't study these things. In the Hasidic world, they wouldn't even allow it to sit on the shelf. In the more modern places of study, they give it, you know, I, I want to say they, they give it sort of a surface um, washing over, but I, I think these days, basically all schools give it like a, a surface overview, right? I, I mean, I, I, I learned Voltaire by reading Voltaire, but I'm not sure how many people um, re- read Voltaire, or is there a curriculum where they tell you which books to read and and how to analyze them, and they tell you exactly what to think about each of these philosophers and what they write? So they're basically telling you how to think, which isn't really studying philosophy. That's just uh, I would call it indoctrination. 
of some kind. But 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 assuming assuming that that you that it does exist out there a system of learning in the more modern world certainly this is part of everyone's education and and the question is what are the results of that are they positive or are they negative and i don't think it's such an easy question to answer would the yeshiva world be better off if they were studying these things with obviously in a, in a in an appropriate setting not in a place where people are going to try to force feed you a specific understanding of these works and that of course is a big issue i, I may have mentioned before that there was a great rabbi you know there's big issues regarding the study of Moran Nevuchim. Um, there were great rabbis who studied it, and of course, there are many who say that for individuals for whom you know, they are on that level, it can apply to them because, because they, they're safe. But I, I want to bring out one viewpoint. There was one great rabbi who he divided his own personal copy of the Moran Nebuchim, he divided it into two parts, the questions and the answers. And for each chapter or each section, he would first read all the answers, and then he would read all the questions. So they asked him, why are you doing this? You read a book out of order. And he said, because what the Rambam has to say is actually very true. What the Rambam has to say is, is, is the emet, it's the truth. Many people who criticize the Rambam, and we're talking here about the French rabbis, maybe they didn't understand the Rambam. That's a big deal. Maybe they didn't understand the Rambam. For example, the Ragachover Gaon, Rabbi Yosef Rosen, the Tafnas um, Paneach, he wrote that, that uh, and he knew the entire Torah, and he said that everything that the Rambam ever wrote can be found somewhere in the Talmud. That's a big statement for the Ragachover to make. So, and the Ragachover lived um, in, the, in the 20th century. So what they say is, what they say is that, that the Rambam himself, what he wrote, certainly fits in with what it says in the Torah. But, but the, the, the problem is that the truth of the Rambam is in the Rambam's answers. What's dangerous, this great rabbi said, is the Rambam's questions. Because the questions force you to ask yourself ideas, which, which, which are great questions to ask, but if the answers don't register, then, then the questions will remain. So he said, first I learn the answer, and when the answer is satisfying to me, then I go back and look at the question, but because the answer is satisfying, the questions don't corrupt me. That's what this great Rambam said. So that's what this great rabbi said. And he brought a proof for this, which again, an idea we've shared before. He said, we say in our prayers, En kelokeinu, en kadonenu, en kemalkeinu, en kemoshienu, mi chalokeinu, mi chadonenu, mi chamalkeinu, mi chamoshienu. So he said, that's out of order. First we say, en kelokeinu, there's nobody like God. En kadonenu, there's no one like our master, there's no one like our king. And then we say, mi chalokeinu. You just said, en kelokeinu, why are you saying mi chalokeinu? He says, no, no, first we give the answer. Once you know that that's going to be the answer, then you could say, very clever, very clever reading. But his point is, that if you are in the kind of place where you can 
see the questions. You can look at them. You get them. And you say to yourself, you know what? This is probably something that we can't properly understand, so we'll just leave it. And here's something that we can understand, and we're going to keep that. That's where you're safe. And again, I didn't want to make this a class about Spinoza, but that's exactly what happens to Spinoza. Spinoza ruins everything because he believes very much like Elisha ben Avuya, ironically. Spinoza believes that if my mind cannot fathom it, then it cannot be true. Because existence can only fit into what the great intellect can fathom. And, and, and that causes Spinoza basically declare himself God. I mean, that's, it, 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 it's, it's tragic. Spinoza, and he's, he's talked about like he's some holy great philosopher who, who, who changed the way people think. I mean, he guess he did change the way people think, but not necessarily for the better, because he introduced the ego, so much ego, into the process, and that's where corruption comes from. If you believe that the universe only exists on terms that make sense to you, that's a really big ego. And that can lead you to say a lot of crazy things. The French didn't approve studying philosophy but today, the Orthodox group in Israel, they oppose any secular education, and in fact, they oppose any working. And I read with my husband the Talmud that even Hillel, that was very poor, he would work eight hours, he would study what eight hours, and then he would take off his family, and half of the amount he would pay uh, for the family, and half of the amount. So how can you explain uh, the future when you went to the future? Yeah, you know, it, it's, a gr- it's a good point. I, I think that, that, that's got to be a whole separate subject, yeah, the specific point of work versus not work. But the, the, the first issue you're raising, which is that today they consider all studies to be off-limits, right? and, and they're using some of these arguments. So I'm saying that they cannot base themselves, because even the French rabbis were not saying that a person shouldn't learn you know, basic arithmetic and things like that that you need in order to function in life. And take a look at the French rabbis like Rashi, the greatest commentator of all time. Right? Rashi was a winemaker. Right? Rashi worked um, for, for a living, as did his grandchildren. They, you know, they were also, they were all uh, winemakers. Yeah, so, so we have to separate that issue, but specifically philosophy was being rejected, and like I said, the Vilna Gaon kind of ruled. He made the ruling, he said, no, all the philosophy is garbage, and we don't believe in any of it, and there's no point in studying it. He did not say that about mathematics, in fact, the Vilna Gaon, I, I have a, a, a safer on my shelf. It's, it's called Ayol Mishulash, and it's the Vilna Gaon's math book. And, and it's a bunch of mathematical proofs. That's written by the Vilna Gaon. So, so I, I'm agreeing with you that certainly you cannot take what the French rabbi said, which is to ban and prohibit philosophy. And some of them tried to make it about ages, till you're 25, till you're 50. But it's... it's the point is that they banned this. We may have gone further and banned other things, but we, we can't blame it on them because they were specifically only going against philosophy. I have a question. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. 
Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. Thank you.